Welcome to the podcast, Walking in Discipleship. Over there is Pastor John Barris and uh, Pastor Tim Barr. I'm Alan Brace, and we're talking about discipleship. For the past 12 episodes, we have been talking about how to put feet to what we have learned about discipleship so that we can live a life that's more godly and also so we can train others to live and walk a more godly life. On this episode, we are going to uh, talk about contentment. We're going to begin talking about this is part one of a two-parter. And for those of you with the discipleship guide called The Walk, we are going to begin on page 97. And as you know, we don't always stay on specific pages. We just wander off sometimes. That's because of John, by the way. I just want to say I, I yeah. am not responsible at all for the wandering. Right, John? <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> you don't well, really have to take credit for that. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, uh, yes, uh, well, we lead where people follow. Uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's begin right there on page 97. Let's talk about that uh, glass full illustration. Who, which of you would like to explain what that means? I, I, I've tried to explain it in class, but it kind of, you know, I don't know that I did a good job. All right, so there's some people that say the glass is half empty, and they're very sad and they're pessimistic. And then there's people who say the glass is half full, and they're optimist. And John, what is the whole glass theory? Well, the whole glass theory is that even though one half it may be visible and the other one is not, but actually the the, the half that is not, it actually has something, an invisible substance, and that would be the, <laughs> the air. And so that's the life lesson uh, in, in, a, in a very short illustration. Is that, it, so what you're saying is we try to make application to a life as we, we set the basis for this conversation on contentment. Are you saying that so that the part that we see in the glass half full is the part of our life that we see and try to control ourselves, the earthly life that we have. And the other part that's, that's the air part that we, that's invisible. That is God moving in our lives. Is that a way to say it? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I don't know. The illustration doesn't make any sense to me because I mean, I'm looking at it and I'm like the whole point of the glass half full and the glass half empty is there are people who look at a glass, right? And when they say it's half empty, the pessimist looks and says, look, um, I'm looking at a possibility of 100% content and there's only 50% in there. The half full person looks at it and says, yeah, but look, there's at least 50%. Um, I just don't think there's an element where Christians have to look at their life and say, I'm living 100% full all the time. Um, you know, the old song, if you're happy to you know it, say amen. I'm not sure we have to say amen every moment of our lives. Mm. Are we optimists or are we pessimists or is it something else? I think that the book is trying to um, teach us the fact that we should have a holistic approach to life in the sense that, you know, to have a balanced approach to life, even though we may not see all the things, but we know that the Lord is in control and he orchestrates all the things in life for our good and for his glory. Yeah, by distinction from that, we're not saying the same thing, say, a Buddhist would say, where when they talk holistic language, they're not talking divine providence and divine design. What they're talking about is like yin and yang. 
you know, mm-hmm. that you need to keep in balance the black and the white in life, right? The good and the bad. We're not arguing that you need to keep the good and the bad. We're arguing that we have a divine God who sovereignly controls everything in life. But I would just say this. I think it's okay to affirm that your glass is half empty and sometimes three quarters empty and sometimes nine tenths empty because God does empty us sometimes. God sometimes leaves big holes in our lives. I mean, I don't want to walk up to a widow who just lost her husband and say, I just want to let you know your glass is 100% full. Okay. I know it feels like there's a big hole in your life, but let me just affirm it's not really there. No, it's real. Mm. Someone, someone mentioned this in, in our discipleship class the other night. Is it, where, where does being uh, upset and having the emotional part of this uh, begin and end? And where does just being content in God's sovereignty begin? And, you know, and where's that line? And, And is it, it's obviously not improper to be angry and upset because, well, if you lost a spouse, that's, you're going to be upset. There's a, there is a mourning period there, but at what point, I mean, it, it, does, does the providence of God have to enter into the equation and the sovereignty of God enter into the equation and, and give us contentment on when we hang on to that? And when you stop saying what God says about himself and you stop saying what God says about you, that's when the problem comes. And that's why I think this um, chapter is so incredibly helpful. While the original illustration really does at least bring up a great dialogue and conversation, when you get into the content, I really like where it goes. I mean, it starts with this idea of being positionally content. Um, In other words, there are certain things that we need to know are true because God says they're true about him and God says they're true about us. We'll never be content until we kind of begin to think through those ideas. We are, we, we need to be positionally content in Christ. Uh, I think it's in uh, Colossians two, where it says that, uh, that we are made complete in Christ. That is, that's where we are based. Um, But is, and that is where we have to go back to, I think, don't we, where we have to go back and say, I know this for a fact. I know that I'm positionally secure in Christ. That that positionally, I I should be um, secure. I should know that for sure, rather than this emotional thing that goes on. Well, I'm happy, and so I'm I'm content. Is is that right? I mean, I think that's kind of what they're talking about here, right? Yes, I think so because sometimes we may understand contentment as being uh, happy. And uh, with a smile uh, all the time on our faces, but um, the the Bible tells us we are not driven by our emotions. Um, we guide our life based on what we know and what is sure. And the Bible makes it clear that in Christ we have everything we need, and uh, in Him we are made complete. Um, and uh, that means that everything, as Peter says in two Peter uh, one three. Uh, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness in, in Christ, and we know uh, what we have. And even though sometimes we might not feel it, but we know that the Lord is 
in the, those situations with us. And this idea of being made complete, if we're going to get really technical about the original language, this notion um, where it says you in, uh, I'm just you know where we're at, we're in Colossians 2.10, in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. That word made complete is a past tense verb that has continuing effects into the present of the reader. So in other words, while we are in our identity in Christ at the moment of salvation, we are made complete. The effects of that continue through our progressive sanctification and our challenges. But so often when we are discontent, what we feel is incomplete. We feel empty. You know, after a breakup with a girlfriend, the boy feels like there's just, he feels like he's not complete anymore. He feels like he's broken. And the reason is this, he was trying to find his completeness in the relationship with a girl when he should have been looking for his relationship and his sense of identity in Christ. And and I think what we're dealing with more than anything in this whole issue of contentment is we live in a world, and I love what you said, John, everything's looking at emotions, but people's emotions are being driven by relationships, they're being driven by their wealth, they're being driven um, by the stock market, right? They're just driven by all the, the tides and the winds of our culture. But we're saying this, when someone's a born-again believer, we are made complete with continuing effects in every day of our life, our completeness is in Christ. I think there's one uh, very popular pastor on you see on television on radio who says it this way: Don't tell me what I what I feel. Don't tell me how I should feel. Tell me what I know and let me anchor to that. And Good. I think that's that's the point that you're getting to. Let's uh, can I read Romans eight twenty eight and twenty nine? Can we take a look at that? Because yeah. you know when you get to contentment, how, people often turn to eight, uh, Romans eight twenty eight and they use it for whatever point they're trying to make but let me read it it says and we know that all things work together for good to those who love god to those who are called according to his purpose and then verse 29 for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren you know god orchestrates the events all events i would you know in his sovereignty uh with the goal of producing what is good but in our book they they, they say that there are four qualifications that we need to talk about when it comes to Romans 8.28. And the first one is, what does God cause to work together for good? What What is it he's doing? John, I mean, how would you explain that to someone? How would you explain that God is uh, causing things to work together for good? It's, it's The first qualification is so uh, crucial in the sense that um, the Bible says that God causes all things, even good things, even bad things, and um, even those situations that we we don't like and uh, events in life. And so, I would say that the explanations that uh, the explanation that the uh, book is offering us in in terms of nothing can happen to the Christian that will not be woven into the plan of the Lord for your life. And God promises that the end of this plan is good. And so, um, even though in in our limited mind, uh, we cannot understand and see clearly how exactly God is using all the things in our life. But we can trust because we know the Bible says so. And so, 
uh, it must be true. You know, in Genesis 50, where Joseph is gets his final summation at the end, he looks at um, his brothers and says, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. We're not, a, we're not denying that there's real evil. When we look at the war that's going on right now in the Ukraine, and we hear the atrocities, we're not like broad brushing that away and saying that's not evil. What we're saying is that God is so sovereignly wise and, and he is so strong and he is so powerful that he can even take the most evil men in the world and accomplish good despite their best efforts to rebel against him. And if he can do that for those situations, he can do it in all the micro situations of our lives. So how do you, how would you define good? Does God take even bad things and make them good or, and, and what is our definition of good? First of all, that's the second qualification, by the way, but does God make, is everything good that God, because God is using it or does God use bad things to, so that at the end it is good for us? Is that so how God would, how makes you, the world in Genesis one, um, he looks at each of the days and he looks at it and everything he made and says is good. He gets done the end of creation and he looks at everything he made and he said, it is very good. What does that mean? It means that everything was in conformity to God's character and God's design. So if we were going to ask what is good, good is when the things of our lives fit in conformity to God's character and God's design. And notice, it's not when they fit into our emotional space. Right. It's not when it's, it's something that we enjoy. It is when we recognize that all the events of our lives and the entire world we live in all, are all in conformity to God's plan and God's grand design. And by, so by good, we mean that he is making, in, in our lives, he's using circumstances and things that are going on in our lives to make us more conform to his image, like it says in, in uh, verse 29. Yeah, but John, the problem is Genesis 3, right? In mm. between everything being completely good, we now end up in a world where God's design is still on display, but now we have a cursed world. What do we do with that? Exactly, and bad things are bad things, as the Bible, uh, as the, our book says, uh, in, in the sense that uh, I really like how, how it sounds in, uh, in English. Um, the, these bad things that happen aren't good things in disguise, uh, and they are not. They are bad things because of the fall. Uh, that's the starting point in, in, in the entire Christian worldview. Everything was good in the beginning then because of the sin and uh, because of fall, um, creation, and uh, everything uh, God destroyed. And so what I think the Bible is teaching, and as our uh, book emphasizes, is that God can take even those bad, really bad things and turn them um, in, in, and help us to be conformed to the image of Christ and for his glory. It's, it's notice, a teaching lesson, right? We know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God. Remember, if broad is the way that leads to destruction and many will go in there at, right? then we have to conclude that in God's design, all those who reject God are going to find an eternal place of constant suffering forever. That's not good. Right? 
it's a how many times have we heard unbelievers use this or this verse i mean they've heard it maybe at some funeral or something and they've repeated it but it really is just an application that this verse applied properly is only for those who believe those who are children who have been made complete in christ and uh we we had this discussion at work the other day about you know what does this mean what does good mean what does you know how does this fit in and it's pretty interesting to hear others try to explain it but as you said pastor tim they uh it really is you know making making us uh more complete in christ and and more godly you know the other thing i always bugs me about this verse is no one reads the two verses that come before it right if you read the verses that come before it in the same way the spirit also helps our weaknesses for we do not know how to pray as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. No one reading that would have said, oh, great. If you're a Christian, everything's going to be super nice. Yeah. You're going to read it and say your life is going to be so incredibly complex in a sin-cursed world that you're not even going to know how to pray at times. And if the Holy Spirit did not pray on your behalf, you wouldn't even get a prayer that made any sense to the situation. In that kind of suffering, in that kind of confusion, in those moments of loss, we can still affirm that a sovereign God is working every event, including my suffering, for the good of me. I believe the Westminster Confession says that everything is done for the glory of God and the highest good of man. But at the end of the day, I think that while we have emotions and while we uh, and we may be going through difficult times, this verse sort of tells us that in verse 28 and 29, for that matter. But uh, at the end of the day, God is in control. He's a sovereign God who's in control. And regardless of what our emotional state is at this moment, we need to remember the anchor to that point that God is doing all things according to his plan for our ultimate good for those who love him. So um, what does it mean? We're, look, we're, the, the next um, type of contentment that our book talks about here is called privately content. Um, circumstances really shouldn't dictate how content we are. Is that what the, the point is here? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the old uh, um, quote that we hear a lot um, about sports, and that is, you know, sports does not build character, it reveals character. Um, and I would say the same kind of a thing could be said about circumstances. They don't build contentment, but rather circumstances reveal our contentment. Um, and I think in the midst of our trials, that's when we begin to see who we really are. Mm. So are we supposed to be, you know, sort of stoic and just kind of take it as it comes and, you know, keep a stiff upper lip and do all of that? I mean, contentment, private contentment really is about me and how I, how I believe and, and so on. We're not supposed to um, react to circumstances around us. Is that what, is that what we're trying to say, John? I don't, I don't know. Well, the stoic philosophy, I think, uh, is so prevalent in our Western society in the sense that, uh, you know, we, we can do it or, uh, you know, nothing should uh, affect me in spite of uh, how difficult 
some situation could be. Uh, an, another understanding of stoicism in our uh, Western world is that um, no matter what comes in our way, uh, we should be just the same tough and, uh, you know, uh, in that kind of like rugged individualism. Uh, well, that's not what uh, Paul is teaching us. And so um, if Paul, as the book says, wasn't a stoic, uh, he's not a fatalist. Um, he's not just simply uh, getting these approaches to life where, you know, he gets whatever uh, uh, life can throw at him, even though we know that that's not a very good way of saying this idea. And so I think we need to understand what actually contentment is. You think of it this way, it's rejoicing with those who rejoice and it's weeping with those who weep um, in James 5. It has the idea of understanding that we can have both joy and sorrow, but that there is something within our affections or something in our heart that is stable. Um, and, and in the midst of all the waves of life, there's a stability of the soul that cannot be rocked. And that is not from us. That is the transforming work of the gospel in a heart that otherwise would be just constantly blown and tossed by the world. I, I think that's the idea uh, that we're talking about. It, it, it's trusting in the gospel work in the heart. It, it's not a personality thing. So what you're saying is there is that we don't learn contentment during strife or during issues in our lives or or during, you know, a period of, I don't know, call them hard knocks or what have you. We actually, it is something that we have learned. We have learned to be content, as Paul said, prior to the arrival of the hard knocks so that we have uh in many ways like a building we have an anchor to anchor to during the tornado or during the uh during the hurricane uh, if you've ever lived through a hurricane and you can see what happens when the storms of life hit um i've driven through a couple of hurricanes and and it's pretty exciting to see things that you would never expect to blow away blowing across the road in front of you so Yes. That's what life is sometimes, by the way. <laughs> life yeah. feels that way, where everything you thought was secure is unhinged. Everything is blowing away. But I would just say this. You, you still learn in those moments. But, what, but where does this come from? Where does this sense of contentment come from? It comes from like a Romans 12, 1 and 2 transformation that happens at the moment of salvation. Instead of being conformed to this world, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. So, we, yes, that we learn in the midst of sorrow, because how many times in sorrow do we run to the word of God? How many times in sorrow do we go to biblical counsel? Do we pray, right? Sorrows drive us to what we now are in Christ, but they can also drive us from it. Exactly. And what I'm thinking, I don't think it's too much to argue that I think contentment is a spiritual discipline in the sense that you take step by step and you grow uh, by the grace of God in, in Christ. And so, um, yes, sufferings are tough and they are difficult. But in the same time, we could also think that, you know, the Lord is giving us 
strength and the, the courage to advance and to actually to be discipled even through the mis- in the midst of suffering and uh, just growing. And for instance, um, let's, uh, another example is fasting. Well, uh, if, if you want to fast, uh, if you didn't practice it before and you want to fast for, let's say, three days without uh, drinking or uh, eating, it will be tough. But as you grow in faith and you practice, let's say, fast, uh, let's say you know, you fast uh, one day a week and then uh, for a few hours and then next week you can uh, maybe add another hour and, uh, you know, things like that, then... Uh, you learn through practice. I would agree totally with what you just said, John, because um, in our text on page 103, um, we have Philippians chapter 3, verse 14 quoted, where Paul says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. And what they said is Paul never just quit and said, well, you know, I can just wait, I'm saved, everything's going to go well. But rather, there was a spiritual discipline. And what is interesting is we're almost going to sound like Puritans for a second, because as you take the next verse after verse 14 and go into verse 15, he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature in the faith, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal to you. You see, the spiritual disciplines are not merely an external thing. We're not arguing that you simply control the effects of life, but rather what we're affirming is that in the midst of trials, we continue to press on, but what we are really looking at is our attitude. And I feel like that in the area of contentment is a word we need to talk more about because a lot of times people think of contentment in terms of outcome, not attitude. Well, and, and I, I, I guess I would summarize it by saying that contentment is really uh, what our view of God is at the end of the day. I mean, that's, that's what we, if we don't trust that God has got all things uh, in his hand and is sovereign, and uh, we, we don't have an anchor to go to at that point. And so our viewpoint of God really is the anchor point for our contentment. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Especially if if our view of God is 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 low, then obviously His ways could seem uh, very inappropriate. But Psalm eighteen verse thirty, the Bible says God's ways are blameless. And so, if we trust these um, uh, these Bible verse, then we could be content, even in the midst of ways that seem grim and uh, uh, there is there is, seems to be no end to it to them but god's ways are blameless that's so awesome that is so awesome to contemplate that god is sovereign and in control and and we can anchor to that that's the contentment is found there by uh, our viewpoint and what we see from god see of god and how we view him Well, thank you for joining us on this podcast. We're trusting you've been learning about what contentment is and how to be content in our lives despite the chaos that may be going on. Uh, We encourage you to pray for those you are discipling. Uh, We these are lessons that uh, that new believers and uh, and even older believers need to be refreshed on. Uh, Pray for 
praying for your mentoree is a very powerful tool and really is required to teach godly principles to build up those disciples of Christ. So for Pastor uh, John and Pastor Tim, I'm Alan, encouraging you to join us again next time as we learn to put to practical use what we have learned about contentment as we look at the practical side of contentment. Until then, so long.